it's uh, it's good to see you here, and I hope you're enjoying the enjoying the conversation with each other, and also um, aware of God's presence uh, with us. Let's worship together. <clears throat> and welcome to each one of you. I'll be opening the service with the Lord's Prayer in the New International Reader's Version. I've been reminded twice this week in conversations of the richness and simplicity of this passage that Jesus has given us. The first reminder is that it begins with our Father. We are a family. The burdens and joy we carry, we share them. And the second reminder May your kingdom come and your will be done. Let's remember that God's plans are way better than ours. So I'd ask you to please quietly listen and reflect as I pray. Matthew 6, 9 to 13. And this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, may your name be honored. May your kingdom come. And may what you want to do to happen to be done on earth as it is done in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins, just as we also have been forgiven those who, 
just as we also have forgiven those who sin against us. And keep us from sinning when we are tempted, and save us from the evil one. Amen. I'm going to be reading from Psalm 104, 1 to 15, and this will also be in the New International Reader's Version, as will be the, the final reading by Olivia. Psalm 104. I will praise the Lord. Lord, my God, you are very great. You are dressed in glory and majesty. The Lord wraps himself in light as if it were a robe. He spreads out the heavens like a tent. He builds his palace high in the heavens. He makes the clouds serve as his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes the wind serve as his messengers. He makes flashes of lightning serve him. He placed the earth on its foundations, and it can never be moved. You, Lord, covered it with the oceans like a blanket. The waters covered the mountains. But you commanded the waters, and they ran away. At the sound of your thunder, they rushed off. They flowed down the mountains, and they went into the valleys. They went into the place that you appointed for them. You drew a line they cannot cross. They will never cover the earth again. The Lord makes springs pour water into the valleys. It flows between the mountains. The springs give water to all of the wild animals. The wild donkeys satisfy their thirst. The birds in the sky build nests by the waters. They sing among the branches, and the Lord wanders the mountains from his palace high in the clouds.
It is wonderful to be back with you. Uh, there is going to be communion later in the, sea, uh, in the sermon. Service, that's the word. Uh, so if you do not have your communion glass yet, uh, I'd encourage you at some point between now and the end of the sermon, go pick one up. And so join me now in a time of prayer. God, we come before you this morning, first and foremost in praise that we can come before you closer to how we remember than we have been able to in a number of months. Lord, it is wonderful to see our brothers and sisters face to face like this. And God, we pray, Lord, we pray that this is how it keeps on. And God, we also want to say thank you for all of the many blessings that you put in our lives in the day to day. There are so very many of them that we often don't even think to keep track of them, yet at the same time, by not doing that, quite often we miss your face where it is shining clearest. And so God, we pray, help us in everything that we do to always remember to keep an eye out for you. Now, God, there are a number of people in our congregation, around our congregation, and in our town that are on our hearts today. A number of people for whom they have been battling what it is that ails them for a long time, and it is getting to be so much. But God, we continue to pray for your healing in whatever form that will take, that you continue to be a light shining, and also a support. God, each of these things we bring before you this morning, each of them weighing on our hearts. We know you are a God that can do all things. And so God, we pray over the week to come, we keep our eyes open to see each and every one of the things that you do. Our Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen. I am the Lord, your God, brought you out of Egypt, that is the land where you were slaves. Do not murder. As you can tell, today we are talking about the sixth commandment. The commandment that I dare say we likely all agree is the biggest, duh, obviously, of the entire list. Thou shalt not murder. And I think to explain, I think to explore this commandment the most effectively, the the sheer fact that we think it's the most obvious addition to the list means that I think we need to take a quick step back and look at the world where this commandment was written in the first place. I think we need to do this because in our minds, I'm pretty sure that we have been a bit too conditioned to see the rationale for this commandment more from our own culture's perspective than from the point of view that the Bible might have on it. And even though both the Bible and our culture agree that murder is bad, I don't think any of us are going to contest that one, the different reasons that get us to that point, that murder is bad, they end up changing the takeaway of this commandment and what it should impact our lives like quite a bit. And so to begin, let's, let's ask a question. Let's ask, why shouldn't we murder someone based on our culture's understanding today? 
And I think that to get to the heart of that, likely all I need to do is ask you the question, what happens if you murder someone? Then wait three seconds, one, two, three. And then I am betting in your minds that some picture of police, some picture of a prison cell probably entered your heads. Willing to bet? Oh, rebel. <laughs> Why shouldn't you murder someone? Our culture thinks today, well, because you'll get caught, you'll be prosecuted, locked away for a long time. It just isn't worth it for us to do that. It would be throwing my life away. But how does that differ from how the Bible understands murder? Well, I need you to spend some time imagining a place for me. Imagine, if you will, that you lived in a time before our kind of understanding exists, a time before there was such a thing as police, and such a thing as prisons, such a thing as people that will track you down and find you if somebody ends up dead. A time when the people died frequently and often for absolutely no discernible reason whatsoever. A time when all around you, there just happens to be a landscape that's just riddled with rifts and fissures in rock and earth that's pretty easy to dig a grave in that nobody's going to see. In short, a time when murdering someone almost certainly would be something that you would get away with. Let's imagine that time. And now let's continue imagining. Let's stack onto that. Let's imagine that also during that time, when it's so very easy to get away with murder in the first place. There wasn't any formal set of laws like we have today either, which while for some of us that might sound like just an absolutely great time, on the other side what that means is, is that there is no formal way of dealing with grievances if somebody wrongs you. If somebody is antagonizing you, there's no formal way of dealing with that either. If somebody hurts your honor, there is no way of dealing with that. And also, if you are so poor that you do not have what you need just to get by, there is no formal thing making sure that you and your family will even survive. Strangely enough, all of these problems are things that are pretty easy to solve rather permanently if somebody just gets disappeared. And now let's imagine one more thing on top of that. Let's imagine that this world that you live in is also a world where the average life expectancy is in maybe the 30s, a world which is, it's the odd child out that makes it past infancy and the odder child out that grows to adulthood, a world where slavery is not out of the ordinary and on top of that, also the people themselves would not be so removed from that horrible institution passing on what it makes you think about the worth of people to their children and children's children in turn. Imagine this world. Let's compile all that. This is a world in our minds in which there is no protection against others taking advantage of you other than that which you can secure for yourself. This is a world in which there is no justice if one, someone else wrongs you unless you secure that justice for yourself. And this is a world where sustenance is in short supply that kind of incentivizes you to take from others because it's either that or you watch you and your family starve. 
This world is all that while primarily being populated by people that think that human beings are some degree of worthless, some degree of chattel or just slightly removed. All who live in a terrain that make it almost guaranteed that if you kill someone, you will be able to cover that up so that no one would ever know. That's the world that Moses is in when he receives the commandments. And when you put it all together like that in a big old list, I, I would say that the inclusion of this law on that list, thou shalt not murder, I don't think we should take it quite so for granted as we unconsciously do today. Because of all that which we imagined is the case, there's a question that really needs to be answered. Why shouldn't we murder people? If murder is easy, if people are not worth much, and it is untraceable, and it is kind of incentivized, then why is it that it is such a bad thing to do? Why is it that this commandment is on the list in the first place? To that question, there are, by my figuring, two reasons in the Bible that the Ten Commandments are really working with, and both of which we've actually hit on in our series already. I can't off the top of my head remember which of the last two speakers it is that mentioned this. I'm thinking it was you, Lyndon, but I'm pretty sure, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was you. When they, they said that the Ten Commandments can be split into two broad sections. There are the early commandments that talk all about how we are to live in a relationship with God as his people. And then there are the later commandments that talk about how we as God's people are to live with the rest of creation and with one another. This commandment falls very firmly into that second group. Why shouldn't you murder people even if you think that they deserve it? It is easy to get away with and you think that they are not worth much anyway? Well, because you are following the God who led you out of Egypt. And he wants you to live in a community with one another. And surprise, surprise, you don't have much of a community if people just keep disappearing into the wilderness every time they do a little thing. Tim Dick mentioned last Sunday the Ten Commandments are also a summary of the laws of the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible. And in those laws, we see this function of the commandment real clear because there are just a ton of things that are listed all about why not to murder people, each of them aimed at the same thing, helping to people to live in community with one another as God intends them to. Did you accidentally kill a neighbor's cow? Well, then make restitution for it in this and this way. Why should you do that? Well, the implication is so he doesn't kill you. Did you accidentally wrong somebody's honor? Well, then make atonement for it in exactly this way those laws spell out. Why? Well, the implication is so things don't get out of control. So he doesn't or his family doesn't eventually kill you. Even more interestingly is that there are community components that are littered throughout these laws as well. You are to bring those who wrong you to the elders and to the people, and they are to help make sure that you set those things right. There is an obligation that is placed on everybody, even if they are not directly involved in that wrongdoing to begin with, because it impacts everybody. So why should you not kill people, even if it's easy, even if you think they deserve it, and you think a little of their worth in the first place? Well, 
There's your first reason. Because as followers of God, the God who led us out of Egypt, out of slavery, we believe that he calls us to live in community with one another and murder just kind of runs against that, doesn't it? But to live in community is a duty where we all have to step up to the plate, where we all have an obligation to make sure that that community lives on healthily as well. That is the first reason, because God wants us to live together. But it's the second reason that I think is actually the most important of the two, and it's actually the most countercultural of the two, specifically for their culture, but I would say for ours as well. And you can find what that point is just by asking a single question. Why does God even care that we live in community with one another in the first place? And the answer there takes us back to well before Moses. In fact, it takes us all the way back to the dawn of time itself. For what did God say in Genesis 1 when he made human beings? There they are, male and female, together in my image. And at the end of that section, he even adds they were made good. The male and female together are made in the image of God. That implies a whole pile of things. And one of those things is that people are meant to be with other people. Or how about we look forward a couple chapters to the story of the actual first murder in the Bible. Cain and Abel, Genesis 4. And Cain harbors jealousy for his brother and murders him, to which God, we read, absolutely loses it. What have you done? is what he says. But even then, as he punishes Cain, he doesn't kill him. Instead, he puts in his way a city to ensure that this sin is kept in check going forward. There is still care there. Or we can go forward even more to the story at the beginning of Exodus in chapter one of that book, when we read that the people are being persecuted and are being oppressed in their enslavement. And so they call out to God to save them, to which God listens and leads them out of that terrible situation because they are his. We could keep going on and on, but the point is made. What is the second reason as to why we should not kill people? Because God says that we are worth something. More than that even, God straight up loves us and he made us to not be alone. And I dare say on the list of reasons why you should think twice before you off someone, that you would be killing someone that the Lord God in heaven thinks is worth something, I dare say that should cause you to rethink your thoughts just a little bit. But those two reasons, they really paint a very different understanding from the one that we have behind why you shouldn't kill someone. For us today, you don't want to kill someone because in large part, you'll get punished. An answer that while effective, clearly our murder rates are pretty low, it's kind of focused purely on me. That's weird, isn't it? Why should I not kill someone? Well, because it'll inconvenience me in the long run. It's a weirdly selfish way of looking at the death of somebody else, of a human being. But for the people of the Bible, a couple generations down the line, when the full impact of what God is saying in the law of Moses really begins to set in and they begin to see people as God sees them instead of how they were made to see them from their time in slavery, 
Ask these people why you shouldn't murder someone, and they will tell you that it is because doing so will break the community around them that God wants them to live in. And so they have a duty to make sure that doesn't happen. And what's more is that these people will also tell you that murder is to end the life of someone that God says is worth something, and that they also have the duty to act towards other people in that same way as well, as if they are worth something. That is one of the big differences between our culture and that of the Bible. Today, you should not murder because ultimately it inconveniences you. But in the Bible, it's understood to be such a heinous act that it tears apart the community as in an affront, and it is also an affront to God because it takes from this world someone who is to their core worth something in the eyes of God. And those, I dare say, are much better reasons than the ones we have as to why thou shalt not murder. But they are also reasons that carry with them far more implications than the one we have today. Because really the only implication of our reason to not murder someone today because you're going to get punished is, well, you shouldn't murder people. But the takeaway of the two biblical reasons to not murder are a lot more broad than that. Because if you are not to murder someone because we are called to live in a healthy community with people we see are valuable as God sees that they are valuable, then that, that has to mean that we have a duty to make sure that the community is not one where things get to the point where murder is even considered in the first place, doesn't it? Because it's not like people just wake up one morning or like, well, today I'm going to murder someone. No, it's, it's built on. One straw at a time until the camel's back breaks. And so it's an ongoing process to make sure that the world around us doesn't get to that point. If that sounds familiar. That's because that is exactly what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount that we went over three months ago. Do you want to work in our community to turn it into the kind of place where murder is never even considered in the first place? A place where people feel like they are worth something. Then while there are a ton of big ways that you can do that, I suspect all of those are going to pale next to the hardest of them all. Learning how to actually apologize who here is someone in their life that every time you are around them for any amount, you just lose it because the bad blood between you going back years causes you to hear everything they say in a very particular kind of way? Don't need to raise your hand. I definitely fall onto that one. Whether that's a sibling, an old friend, child, parent. Who here has someone in their lives that they can hear sorry from a hundred times, but it always feels like it means nothing, and so the same fight that you've had countless times just keeps coming back and keeps getting worse? Who here feels like no matter how much somebody apologizes to them, the person they are apologizing to is simply unwilling to listen? I don't think it's possible to work to make communities into the kind of place where Anger that prompts worse and worse reactions is done away with if you don't first know how to say sorry. 
or more if you are unwilling to learn that. There's more in an apology than just words. In it, there, there is the ability to let that hot water out of the pot before it boils over. In it, there is the ability to undo years of harm that are all building towards a terrible end. But you just need to know how to uh, apologize. The reason apologies do this is because if they're uncoerced, if they are sincere, if it is done right, that's an important one. And also if they are seeking reconciliation, even knowing that sometimes that isn't just as simple as sorry and done, sometimes that is years. If you can apologize like that, there is some amount of telling someone that they are worth enough to you that you are willing to make things right with them even if it wounds your pride to do so. There is some amount of recognizing that inherent worth of a person, that you'd be willing to lower yourself for them and that that can change everything to someone who has been hurt enough that they just wanna lash out because in that you are showing them that they are valuable, just as God sees they are valuable, that they are valuable to you, just as God sees they are valuable to him. And because of that, there is no better first step than a true apology when it comes to turning our community into the kind of place where violence and murder is never considered in the first place. And yet, so many of us are so very unwilling to admit when we hurt someone, when we find ourselves constantly defending what we did, even though it almost certainly is being interpreted by that other person as, I value being right more than I value you every time we do that. Who here has ever had somebody apologize to them and then immediately follow that up with a 10 minute explanation of why they did exactly what it is that they did? How did that make you feel? And I ask you from what we talked about before about the value of people and building a community and the violence that comes when people just are never set to right. What happens to people when they think that people are less valuable than they are in the end. But if you are someone who knows that there is a big apology that you need to make, and you want to make it in a way that sticks, in a way that shows the person that they mean something to you, here is my suggestion for you. This is something that I did not come up with. It was taught to me by one of my profs at seminary, and it's worked spectacularly well for me in the past. And it's found its way into premarital counseling I've done as a result. But if you are having trouble apologizing in a way that sticks, I suggest try this. And this is gonna sound counterintuitive when I lead like this, but don't apologize to them off the top. Instead, here's what you do. Instead, you ask that person to explain in its entirety why it is that they are hurt. As they do that, 
And here's going to be the really hard part. Do not, under any circumstances, try to weigh in or justify or explain what it is that you have done. Do not do that. Just listen. You can ask clarifying questions. You can restate what it is that you have heard so that they know that you are hearing them. But do not try to explain yourself. Then when you are done, restate what you have heard in its entirety to them to make sure that you have got it right. And then you ask them what they need from you to move past this. Then and only then, once you have the entire big story, that is when you apologize and together with them, come up with something actionable that can be done to actually address that problem. Then you make some kind of a schedule for yourself to make sure that you actually do those things. And more importantly, that you update the person on those things that you have done to make progress toward that goal. And while that might sound exceptionally clunky, that might sound like an awful lot as well, I can 100% guarantee you that it's gonna get you a whole lot farther than simply saying sorry and then going about life like everything is fine. Why is it going to get you farther? Because you're actually addressing what the problem is instead of what you think the problem is. And those two things are often worlds apart. And if you are a person who feels that they have been wronged, I encourage you to try this in response. If you are comfortable, if not, get other people involved, but if you are comfortable, confront the person who wronged you and tell them that you need to explain in its entirety why it is that you are hurt. Ask them to just listen and not to say anything until you are done. Then as you explain, you don't point the finger. Instead, you focus on you. You talk about how you understood the offense, how you think about it, and how you feel about it. And then you ask them to repeat back to you when you are done, just to make sure that everything it is that they heard is what you said. It's shocking just how easily, when talking face-to-face -face with someone, especially when it's heated like this, that what one person says is not what the other person hears. And finally, after all that, together with this person, you come up with some actionable thing that can be done to put this fight to bed. And on that last point, you might be tempted to say that they need to change everything about themselves because that sounds like justice in your mind, but it's also not gonna happen. That's not how people work. In the same way that it is possible to hold on to your pride to the point that you are unwilling to apologize to someone, it is also fully possible to hold on to your hurt to the point where you are unwilling to move past it. And when that happens, the community turns into a place where suddenly murder isn't looking all that bad. So I beg you, you come up with solutions that are actually actionable, little things that can move you to the place where you can finally say, I forgive you. That might again sound like an awful lot, and 100% it kind of is, but it will get you farther than just hearing an apology that you don't believe for the a millionth time, getting a little bit angrier every time you hear it. As Christians following God, as this commandment leads us to, 
It is our duty to make our community into one in which people feel valued and that murder is never thought of in the first place. There are many ways to do this, but to know how to apologize and actually work at reconciliation, that's a base that you can actually build something on. Because to apologize and then work to make things right for someone, there is nothing that can show that person that they matter to you quite as much as being willing to do that. And I suspect that's why Jesus spends a solid chunk of the Gospels talking about exactly these things. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall not murder. Those are the words we heard today. Why should you not murder? Because as followers of God, we are to be for building our community and we are to be for seeing human beings for the valuable people they are made in the image of our creator. And what that has to mean is that we as Christians need to work to be quick and effective at setting the wrongs among us to right. And an amen to that. And now we move, speaking of community, on to communion. So have you all gotten your little glasses on you? In our church, we believe that the Lord's Supper is something open to all believers. But at the same time, if you have little ones on you, I will leave it up to you if you feel that your children are in a place to appreciate the significance of what communion is, the significance of being in a community of believers across not only the congregation here, not only the church in McGregor in Canada in the world today, but throughout all of time, all the way back to the first time when Jesus served his apostles himself. It is a wonderful, wonderful thing. We read in the book of 1 Corinthians, for the tradition I received from the Lord and also handed on to you is that on the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and after he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it, do this as a memory of me. For whenever you eat this bread then and drink this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. Before we go into communion, I would ask that we spend one minute in prayer, both thanking our Lord for being with us so visibly in this way, but also putting before him all the things in our own lives that are keeping us from being in that community he calls us to with other people. I ask that if anything comes to mind once we are let out today, please make that right at the top of your things to do list for this week. So let's pray.
Our Father, we thank you so very much for being with us in communion. For being with us in a way that we can see you, that we can understand you, and that we can join with you the same way that believers have going all the way back to the apostles at that table all those years ago. Lord, we pray that the significance of that does not evade us. Lord, we pray that that connection to other believers does not evade us. And God, we pray that we take from this that wonderful strength that you can give to help us run forward to build your kingdom in our town. Lord, we thank you. Amen. And so we take the bread. And together, let us eat. And together, let us drink. And now, we've heard it already once before, but I can't think of a better thing to do than to once again recite the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Did you notice just how much of that prayer directly weighs into what we talked about today?
May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in your faith, so that in the power of the Holy Spirit you may be rich in hope. Go now and serve our God.